Well, well, good evening, everyone. Good evening. Um, as we uh, continue to work through the history of church um, lessons and so forth, I figured it'd be really helpful uh, after working through the 20 centuries of the church to uh, sit down and have a time of reflection, uh, a time of maybe thinking back on some of the lessons that we've learned, why, again, we studied church history, why do we do this, and if there are some of you who have been along for the entire journey, all 20 centuries, I think it's something like, goodness, I should know this. I think it was something right around 60 episodes or 70 that covered the entire swath of all of this. Um, somewhere along the line, I lost count. But uh, I know it's it's there on the podcast. You can <laughs> look at what episode number you are and you know where you're at. Um, but I figured after walking through all of that, it would be really helpful to kind of sit back and think about... Uh, all that we've been through and uh, and what things we've garnered from that. If you have been through all 20 centuries, uh, my uh, my condolences to you for having to listen to me throughout all of that. Um, but also my encouragement to you. Uh, that's quite a thing to do. It's a lot of uh, a lot of ground we've covered and a lot of things we've talked about. And there's really no way to sum it all up. But um, if you if you haven't been through it all and you're just kind of stumbling upon uh, this show or this podcast, wherever you're finding this, um, you know, I, I let this be an encouragement to you to at least go back and start learning some bits of this, because the value of church history going forward. Now, if you've been through all of this with me, um, I know you know uh, the value of church history and what it can do to us and how it can help us. Um, but there's a lot of a lot more to this than just about us. I think that's perhaps one of the biggest takeaways uh, for studying church history. And I want it to be the way that it affects us, and I want it to be the way that we think about all of this. So tonight's going to be a little bit more theological. Tonight's going to be a little bit more practical um, and a little bit more personal. And uh, that's that's kind of how it should be uh, here. A uh, little bit of uh, housekeeping work. Uh, I will not be able to teach next Wednesday night. So if you are, uh, that would be... Um, uh, whatever that is, September 6th, I think that is. Um, and uh, my doctor decided to schedule me for stuff that I can't change and move. So uh, I don't have much control over that. So next Wednesday night, we won't be on, um, but we will come back with fervor the next one after that and uh, and go into these deep dives. I'm already working on some just really fun stuff for two weeks from now. Um, and so for tonight, uh, we wanted to work through these things. Um, if you study church history so that you can feel better about who you are, um, I hope you've been disappointed. Um, church history and the study of it, uh, just like the gospel, uh, is not about you and it's not about me. Uh, church history is about God. Now, hopefully, uh, I've been able to uh, express to you the importance of seeing all of these things from a perspective that doesn't lead us to think that we are the ultimate or pinnacle of all of this. We are not the culmination of church history. I know that that has been the temptation for a lot of Christians and a lot of eras of the church's history to think of themselves as the pinnacle of it, kind of like the, the last chapter of it, shall we say. And, um, and this usually shows up in, a, in an unhealthy over-focus on things like end times, uh, something that has certainly plagued the church for the past, well, at least in America, the church for the past 200 years. But it's been an issue uh, all along. People in the earliest church thought they were some of the last um, generations. People in the uh, early church, in the medieval church, uh, the imperial church, all along. Even some of the radical reformations were, were dedicated to this idea of being the last generation of the church. Uh, and then there certainly has been a massive influx of things. You think of the Millerite movement of the 19th century or um, a lot of the insanity that has gone around America the past 40 years or so with this idea that, um, you know, Jesus is returning at any time, whether it's in 1988 or in 2013 or um, whatever the next one is. Um, that is a symptom of bad theology. It just is. It's, it's a symptom of not studying church history properly. When we study church history, we understand ourselves not to be the pinnacle and the focus of all that has come before us. We find ourselves part of everything that came before us. And 
to live with an expectation that church history will continue on well after us. That is not to say that God will not surprise one generation at some point somewhere along the line with his imminent return. Yes. But to live as though it is almost certainly us is a mistake. Um, now, I know people disagree with me on that and all those things. That's fine. You know, you can have your own show and teach your own ways with that. But I will say this. One of the problems that's undeniable about it is we don't think much about the generations that are coming after us, should that be the case. And the reality is uh, that I find the best way to study church history is never to look at it as though we are the pinnacle or the culmination of it, but instead we are somebody else's church history. hundred years from now, somebody will look back at our time and they will be speaking of the church in our day. They will be speaking of us, uh, probably not by name. But they will be speaking of us in, in a manner of trying to understand what made us tick, what made us make these decisions, what made us anticipate this, or be okay with that, or not be okay with this, or uh, why was this worth dividing over, why was that not worth dividing over, those types of things. Throughout all of the centuries of the church, there have been parts and sides to almost every issue. There have been heresies that have come up. There have been orthodox disagreements. Then there have been struggles of authority and, and who has primacy and, uh, and issues of pride and issues of, uh, of, of central focus on one city over another or one church over another or one leader over another. And throughout all of this, it's easy to become disillusioned. And that's one of the things I want to encourage us as we close out these 20 centuries, do not become disillusioned. Do not look at church history and kind of throw up your hands and say, you know, everyone, everyone, everyone seems to be very on one side here or extreme on there, or even if they agree with me in this area or that, their application seems so bizarre in this area or in that. And it is easy to lose sight of the reality that we are not Christians simply because this is a group of people that makes perfect sense to us. We are Christians because of Christ. And at the end of all of this, if I have not taught you church history in a manner in which you can appreciate that God is faithful regardless of how fallible his people are, that God will ensure his, um, his ongoing faithfulness to his church, and even Christ, as he has promised, his ongoing presence to his church, that these things will continue on well past our own end. Um, that is, I think, the best way to look at church history, that we are not the end of a long line, but we are part of a very long river. Because the reality is that as we teach what we teach and as we hand down what we hand down, the lessons of the past have come to us and affect us in the present so that we may pass it down to the future. Uh, that I believe to be a, a uh, not only a good, but I think a very Christian perspective on how we are to view the church. So for instance, um, let's, let's just kind of think about it this way. If we are working on the idea that um, in order to live a faithful Christian life, we must anticipate that Christ will be returning at any moment. Um, we will give very, very little thought to whatever theoretical generations would come after us. And instead, we would live very focused on the end of the world. And so should we, if that was for sure happening. But one of the side effects that happens with this is if, as has always been the case, Christ doesn't return in that generation. What is the effect? What is the effect? The effect becomes for us um, a, a very self-focused era of the church. And that is something we do not need more of, at least in the West, uh, at this very present moment. We do not need more self-focus. We do not need more individualism, uh, to be perfectly frank. Uh, we've had a lot of that the past several hundred years, and it hasn't served us very well uh, with regards to how we think about theology and our responsibility to ourselves and even to our own future church history. Um, and so uh, when we when we kind of address all of the division that has happened throughout history and when we look at all of these things, to become dejected about all of this is really to miss kind of one of the main points 
church history is not a story about you and me. Church history is not even a story about all the Christians. Church history is a story about what God is doing in this world. And this is one of the things that our theology will come in and make clear to us one way or the other how we are to think about these things. If you're going to think about it the way that I will insist on thinking about it, it is it is to say that all of these things follow because God has uh, intended for his church to be a certain way. As, as, one, as one great hymn, one of my favorite hymns, uh, refers to as my favorite hymn. Uh, one of my favorite hymns is the church is one foundation and refers to uh, the church in a manner of the fact that Christ came from heaven and sought her to be his holy bride. That's, that's how I teach church history. Th- these things are a matter of how Christ has done these things and how he will continue to work in the midst of this. Now, when I started out at the very beginning, back 60, 70 episodes, however many it was, um, and and settled out for us one of our expectations. One of the things that I did warn us about is to say that in the definition of the church proper, as, as to all the Christians, all the redeemed throughout the world, we really cannot study church history in the manner of studying that actual invisible body, uh, communion of saints. That's not a possible thing for us to do. We don't have that perspective. And so we are forced to study the um, the visible church, that which is made up of members and or of leaders, but all the while understanding that in the midst of all of that, there are unbelievers mixed in and there are Christians outside of it. And there's really no way for us to fully grasp and fully appreciate all that's going on when it comes to when it comes to the effect of all these things, so if you've got, for instance, if you've got a um, uh, a church you want to study, uh, you you would have to study it on the basis of an organization. You cannot study it on the basis of the invisible salvation of people. We don't know that. Uh, we don't know the identity of the redeemed, uh, not with perfect knowledge. Uh, elsewise, we certainly would study that. But in reality, we're we're stuck with studying. The uh, the world of uh, the world of the church only from the perspective of what we can see, and even after all of this, I hope you can appreciate. Even after delving into all this, there, there's so little that we can even fully recreate. Looking backwards, can you say that we are a link in the chain? Yes, uh, link in the chain. That's another great way to think about it. Um, and and the things that come after us as, as Christians in church history, the things that come after us depend on us to maintain the the design of the chain and move it forward. Uh, the, their connection to the early church, their connection to the medieval church, their connection to the reformed church is dependent also on us to a certain extent, at least in the visible church mentality. But that also speaks to a whole nother level of this. And this is where I'll bring in some of the theology of this. And part of my encouragement, should all of these things be obfuscated? Should the organization uh, or the organizations of the church be dominated only by false teachers and by those who have uh, curtailed their responsibilities to the gospel? uh, And should that light that the reformers spoke of so greatly uh, that follows the darkness that had come before them, should that light be almost extinguished, we should still be of good cheer. We should still be of good cheer because the continuance of the church does not depend upon us any more than our salvation does. The continuance of the church is dependent on the one who made the church and that is God himself. And so I think there's a lot of Christians that uh, overexert their, or let's just say overthink their uh, ability to maintain the fealty that they have towards Christ or to maintain the nature of the church. There's always this push, let's get it back to the first century. Let's restore it. Let's fix all of this. Look, it's never going to happen. The ideal church does not exist. And if you look throughout these 20 centuries, 
And I promise you, if the church continues on for another 20 centuries, you will look in vain for a church that's ideal. They do not exist. Same goes for an ideal Christian. If you, if you happen to think yourself an ideal Christian, uh, you don't exist. Uh, those That type of um, view of, of wanting heavenliness here on this earth uh, in this present evil age does not comport. It doesn't translate like that. It's, it's desiring and aiming for something that is promised in the new heavens and new earth. And while we are new creations, this is where theology really comes in to, uh, to kind of boot some of these things out of our minds. While we are new creations, we yearn, you know, I mean, even Romans 8 talks about this. We, we groan along with creation, waiting for the revelation of the saints. We look forward to the time when God will make all things new, but that is not yet. And so it is one of these dangerous things uh, that really does come to call when we look at uh, the church as if we can uh, found the church. And I see it, I see it take over young men who go into the pastorate more than just about anything else. And I say young men, now that I'm the ripe old age of 40, I can look back and, uh, and talk about things while I stroke my beard and, uh, and act all old. Um, but I, I see this, this temptation in a lot of young pastors to, to fix their churches and get everything just right. And then everything will be smooth. It's not true. Uh, it's not, it's not going to happen that way. Uh, smoothness, um, uh, you know, flowing or ease or something like this, that just does not happen. Um, and even if it did for a while, uh, these types of things, that, that type of, um, idealness, that type of sinlessness is almost what you're aiming for. It doesn't exist here. No, not yet. Um, and, and even if it did, the, the works of our hands don't, don't make things like that. Uh, and, and I would just, in, I would just encourage you, look back at the 20th centuries of the church. Find an example of, an, of a visible organizational church that worked ideally. They don't exist. You know, John Knox would look at uh, Geneva and he would say it's as close to heaven as we've ever gotten, right? But even that disintegrated, right? Europe has become... Um, uh, very different than what it was uh, even in the 16th century, right? America has become very different than it was even in the 20th century. Uh, these things are not timeless. They are bound to time and to culture, sometimes to language, and even in the worst cases, sometimes only to our leaders. And so we can only have this ideal solidity as long as the leader is there. Uh, and, and the rise of cults of personalities and place of Christ and all of these things happen because of this. And so that's one of the things I really want to encourage people on is when they when they consider church history, when they consider how all these things work, if you come out of church history going, okay, I just learned all the ways that church doesn't work very well. Now I'm going to go out and try to make church work really well. Um, I, I will have counted uh, a failure a bit on my part because I really want to encourage with a study of church history for you to see God more significant in the aspect of the church's health rather than to see ourselves and it dependent on us and what we're doing. I think one of the things that we can appreciate with regards to the church, uh, with, okay, before I actually switch that uh, topic here, we do have another thing. Can you say what God has started, he will complete in a manner and time of his choosing? At best, we see through a glass darkly, and hence must be more focused on faith and patience. Couldn't have said it better. Couldn't have said it better. Um, and uh, I think one of the reasons why such idealistic visions fill uh, young Christians' minds with these things is we haven't really suffered enough to realize that patience is worth all the sufferings that come along our way. Um, and that the avoidance of suffering or the avoidance even of, of failure uh, is not a way of success, not for the church and certainly not in the economy of, of Christianity. The economy of Christianity does not look at temporal failures as a negative thing. 
the economy of Christianity looks at sufferings, looks at supposed failures, and sees them in light of eternity. And that's really what I want to encourage with a lot of this stuff. Because eternity is not filled up with Christians that just remind you of you. I have heard people, um, and here I'll show my hand a little bit on some theology. I've heard people speak of heaven as a matter of um, of having all of these layers to it where, you know, well, I, I was a super Christian, so I get a much better place in heaven, or I have more rewards or more crowns or jewels or all this kind of stuff. Um, I, I don't I don't actually agree with any of that. I think the vast majority of those uh, places being uh, less than a handful uh, in the scriptures that talk about these things are meant to explain aspects of heaven. They're not they're not to sit here and promise, um, you know, closer to the throne of Jesus or um, or, or, or higher or a bigger mansion or any of this kind of stuff. I think that is a very earthly way to look at heaven. I think heaven has much more to say about the glory of God and the glory of what he is doing, um, despite what we're doing. And if anything in church history, it should show us that. Because there's there's nothing that I can look back. And this is the other thing that I said at the very beginning of this study. If you're going to look at church history so that you can find people that remind you of you, think like you, act like you, uh, so that you can feel validated because they shared your beliefs 1,300 years ago or maybe 1,900 years ago. Uh, look, I assure you, almost every wrong belief that's bumping around the church today has someone who held to it in church history somewhere. Uh, there really is nothing new under the sun. We we already combined Buddhism and Christianity. That was uh, Manichaeanism. If you want to look that up, uh, you know you want to go back and uh, combine, you know, uh, materialistic thought with uh, supernatural uh, expectation and secret knowledge to attain to. That's Gnosticism. Okay, I mean it's it's absolutely resurgent in the church today. There there are no real novel new concepts everything kind of just moves around and changes a bit but we've been through the wash on a lot of these things and uh it's important for us to understand them because um if we just look at church history as a way to validate ourselves i promise you you will be validated you will find somebody that backs you up somewhere along the line uh and you'll probably be able to push the data that pretty far back that's not what makes your beliefs right or your church right or any such thing there is a great deal of error in everyone's theology. And I think after going through church history three times, it has taught me a great deal about humility, especially when I approach theology. Now, I love theology. Don't get me wrong. I love theology and those things that uh, are primary, those things are of, um, of utmost uh, importance to me. But there are some things that are just not worth the severe pressure that we put on them sometimes, um, certain modes of baptism or certain um, ways in which we celebrate the church year or or the styles of sermons or whatever the case may be. These things are morphable. Uh, and I say a lot of them are far more morphable than we like to give credit to. Um, and, and I'm not saying this because secondary matters aren't important. They are, but they aren't primary. And, and when we're studying church history, we are trying to get at the core of really what is the primary story of what God is doing in the world, uh, and, and especially amongst his people. And so when we look back at all of this, we realize that they don't all think the same. They don't all believe the same things. Now, we all uh, who would consider what Christianity is, we would all hold to the central core of Christian doctrine. Absolutely. I, otherwise, by definition, we're not Christian. But the reality is, inside that core, inside the elect, there is a diversity of belief, the diversity of practice and application that is very deep and very different from one another. There is not a single Christian that lives in the fifth century, the same way that any Christian lives in the 21st century. We are all so different with cultures, very different with all sorts of different ideas and a completely different mixture of similar ideas, but different application. And that struggle and working through that struggle of, of learning from people different than us is so helpful for us. 
because that's the true way that you end up growing is learning from people that differ from you in belief, in experience, in culture, in everything. We actually get to challenge one another. And it's a great way to, to see some of our own blind spots, right? And so when I go and study Augustine, for instance, or when I study uh, Anselm of Canterbury, or when I study uh, the writings of, of uh, John Wycliffe uh, or of Martin Luther, all of these guys are from completely different places. You know, one from North Africa, one from uh, Bohemia, uh, another one from uh, older version of England, and another one from the Holy Roman Empire, which is now Germany. Like, we're all from different places, yet we all hold this fealty to Christ and talk about him in different ways. And I think that's awesome. I think that's an incredible thing because we do not have to become one culture somewhere in order to follow Christ. I think this is this goes all the way back to the very beginning in the book of Acts. That's kind of where we picked all of this up. That when the disciples came together, when the church came together, the Council of Jerusalem, as so we call it, they come together to discuss this idea, this teaching that was floating around, that in order to become Christians, Jewish people, excuse me, Gentile believers should have to observe Jewish cultural rites, R-I-T-E-S, namely circumcision and, and the, the uh, dietary laws and all of these types of things. That's found in Acts, um, in Acts 15. The decision at that council was no. The Holy Spirit came on the Gentiles in the exact same way as he came on the Jewish apostles at the very beginning. Before circumcision, before all of this other stuff. A testament to the reality that in order for Christians to be Christians, in order for the church, even the visible church, to be the church, it does not have to be of one culture or another. And I think in the West specifically, I think even more specifically in my country, uh, in America, the church is going to have to prepare itself to think in a very different manner. We are not only not the focus and pinnacle of the church's history, we are no longer the focus or pinnacle of the world's theology. I gave a sermon on this about a month ago, that it seems that in the coming century, the focus or at least the work or the heavy lifting of decent, good biblical theology is not going to be done in America anymore. In America was such a it was it's been such an interesting place to look at. And I know a lot of the lion's share of the past two hundred years, uh, the the fascinating, dangerous, and good works of theology have been being cranked out of this country uh, it, with such a, a remarkable force. And an incredible reach, especially with the uh, incoming uh, ability of communication throughout the world. There's been a lot of work here. I mean, everything from Mormonism being made up here um, to uh, to to you know Baptist to Methodist denominations to uh, the Episcopalian denomination becoming what it is. It's just so many different aspects of the church, from Pentecostalism to the Charismatic movements, and all the, all of these things grew up here. And as they've gone out into the world, we've seen all sorts of different effects. Whatever the next hundred years looks like for the church, all I can say is this. I do hope that Christians continue to learn that we, no, longer, no matter who we are, no matter what language we speak, we are not the center of what God is doing nor are we the pinnacle of all of this. The center of what God is doing is his glory and Christ himself. And when we study church's history, it helps us to see that from a better light. It helps us to appreciate that what happened to uh, the church from moving to, from Jerusalem to Antioch was a very tragic thing to some people's experience in Jerusalem. In, in the moving of uh, the center of Antioch, uh, 
uh, even to Rome and the moving of Rome to Constantinople and Alexandria and, and these kind of splits and differences and, and, and I understand we walked through all of this, the centers of the church and the collegiate, you know, uh, autocephalous churches and all of these types of things. But at the end of all of this, we've had multiple movements of the church, depending on where you are and what you think about church's history, whether you think that the center of the church is in Rome or, or that it was in Constantinople, or maybe that it is still in Constantinople, which is, um, you know, Istanbul today, or whether Moscow is the third Rome indeed, uh, or, or if you think that there is no center of the church, or you think that America is the center of the church, uh, or, or that Geneva was, or, or wherever you fall along these things. To look at church history this way is kind of to miss the point. The church is mobile and moving again. This was a wonderful thing. This was something that Jesus even spoke about, that this wasn't a bug of the nature of the church. It was actually a feature of the church. It was a design choice in how God designed his temples to be in the world. He designed the temple, the very first one, the tabernacle, um, at least first one built by humans that we can fully state was a temple. Um, there's all sorts of other theories, but we'll just stick with this one. The tabernacle. The tabernacle was a, a was a, a movable temple of God throughout the world. It was to it was to travel with them wherever they went. And God was with them. And it wasn't until the time of Solomon that a temple was built that was on one mountain. Then there was disagreements over which mountain, because of course humans are humans and there will be discord about everything. And so there was a discord here later on, 300 years goes by, and the difference between uh, which mountain you uh, worship on, uh, the Samaritans claimed the northern kingdom, uh, the, uh, the remnant of, of the southern kingdom obviously claimed Jerusalem, and then you can see this reflected in the woman from Samaria's question to Jesus as soon as she found out that he was the Messiah. What's the first question she asked? Who's right? Which which mountain? And in church history, which city? Is it Rome? Is it Constantinople? Is it Moscow? Is it Jerusalem? Antioch? Alexandria? Is it Georgia? Is it South Africa? Is it Beijing? What, what becomes the center of the... What is the focus? Where is God blessing? Where is God at work? What was Jesus' answer to her? It's not this mountain or that mountain soon to, soon to be. God is choosing worshipers all about. Those who worship him will worship him in spirit and in truth. A magnificent passage, a magnificent promise and all. He was stating the reality was at that point, yes, there was a certain temporal kingdom, earth kingdom aspect to us. Yes, as he says, salvation is of the Jews. Yes, it is Jerusalem. But it's almost irrelevant. They were sitting on the cusp of the church age. It's not going to be this mountain or that, this city or that. That's not going to be the issue. The issue is going to be worldwide. And we see this by the close of the book of Matthew, don't we? Of Jesus's commission to his apostles to go out into all the nations of the world. All the nations of the world. Regardless of how the church is, is um, more fronted or more obvious or plays a more central role in this culture or that, regardless of the effects of this, regardless even of how this all breaks down, the reality is God is the one building his invisible church, regardless of what the visible church does. Now, you look at the visible church and you see with all of its uh, with all of its faults and with all of its problems that's had all throughout history. I will say there are members of the invisible church. There are members who are of members of Christ present in probably every single visible church on earth. Now, I know that's not very common to state in kind of some of the circles I run in, um, but I will state that God has surprised us with Christians from the most surprising of places uh, all throughout the world. I have no qualms about saying that. I have no qualms about thinking that. 
Because the reality is that it's not based on how good we make the organizational church. It is based on God who alone brings about his salvation in the midst of fallible people, in the midst of unideal churches, because there isn't another option. I've always said this even about being a pastor. I'm not an ideal pastor. I'm, as soon as I meet one, I'll resign my position and give it to him. There is no such thing. They don't exist. And if we have built that up in our minds that we have known an ideal pastor, I promise you, I promise you, if you knew all about him, he would be a disappointment to you. Just the same as if we knew everything about everyone in our lives, it would all be disappointing to us, just as we are of our own self. I think it really says a lot about how we approach Christ to think about the idea that it is not based on the works of our hands that make the church any more than the works of our hands can make our salvation. The church will continue to morph and move and grow. The organizational churches will do this. Every once in a while, there comes a need for reformation. That's fine. But the reality is, at the center of all of this, the church, invisible, is being reformed by God and being transformed day by day. And so our despondency or our frustration with the state of the visible church, I would simply call our attention to the fact that God is building his church regardless of how much we see of it. It would not surprise me at all, for instance, if the center of the visible church's solidity moves to Africa in the coming century. That does seem to be the trend. And if that is the case, God be praised. If it is not the case, God be praised. Wherever it goes, I will say the same thing as Moses said, God be with us. This moving temple of the Holy Spirit, wherever it goes throughout the world and however it grows and however it flows, it is God's fire tornado above it, just as it was above the tabernacle there in Exodus 40. If God is not the one doing it, then what, what, what are we doing? And if God is the one doing it, why should we ever be despondent or frustrated or frustrated with the situation? I think this is one of those places that we can appreciate. While we study 20 centuries of church history in the visible sense, there's an eternal aspect to all of this too. God is not just building a temporal church with stones and buildings, with robes and marble floors. No, he is building a temple to the Holy Spirit with living stones, is how the scriptures puts it. I just, this past week, came back from Rome. Um, I've always wanted to see the Eternal City. I've always wanted to... Um, experience, uh, deep history, and f deep and familiar history, um, and that was quite the experience. I got to see things that I really, really wanted to see. Um, I know, I, I know those of you who have listened to me all these, uh, all of these episodes know that um, there's certain things in church history that I just I had to go see. Um, one of them was I had on my list. I wanted to see a relic that was over a thousand years old. That's just me. Um, I had to go. I had to go see that. I wanted to set my eyes on something that uh, people have revered for longer than half the life of the church. Um, and that was just kind of a, a random line I drew in my head. I just wanted something that made me feel small to be around it. And boy, I wasn't disappointed. Um, got to see uh, one of the earliest versions of a relic, uh, if not the earliest version of a relic, as far as any knowledge is concerned. Certainly the oldest one that anyone has. And that was a, um, 
a box filled with uh, rocks and dirt from the Holy Land from back in the fifth century. And it was decorated on the lid, had um, gold foil and it you know drawings of, of five places of uh, Jesus's life, uh, his birth, his baptism, his crucifixion, his resurrection and his ascension. And it had all these rocks and dirt from each of these locations all inscribed and all this kind of stuff. And I mean, knowing when it came from and, uh, and all this kind of stuff, it's, it's remarkable to just sit there and see something that, um, has been the focus of so many different, um, oh, attentions, I suppose. Uh, so that, that was a fun thing for me at least, but it gave me an appreciation, uh, for, uh, how easy it is for us to look at physical things and become distracted by them. Um, I got to go through the Sistine Chapel uh, with about 10 million other people, uh, you know, look up and see pictures of uh, and paintings of things that I have uh, only ever seen in textbooks and drawings of um, just remarkable stuff. Uh, the size of things, the imposing nature of, of marble pillars and, uh, and of Romanesque gates. And uh, it, it was a very overwhelming experience in a lot of ways. And I can see, uh, how so many uh, eras of the church's history are represented by different buildings throughout this, uh, throughout that city. Uh, you have even French Gothic architecture sitting right next to, uh, you know, uh, early Romanesque uh, Renaissance buildings to Baroque buildings right next to that. And it's, you know, from my American mind, I look at something that's 200 years old and I go, oh my goodness, that's a pre-Civil War thing. <laughs> And that sounds old to me uh, to look at something like the Pantheon that I got to go see and go, I mean, and also the Colosseum. And it's just, you know, 2000 year old building just sitting in front of you. You just, yeah, you just almost can't wrap your minds around it. Um, it was quite an experience. And um, it was, it was kind of one of those things that, that continually reminded me of all the different, uh, aspects of history that I had seen in church history gone down through that, uh, through that city, uh, and all the, um, all the difficulties, the struggles with it, um, and always the, the desire to, to pull things back to that city. Um, just such a, just such an, a fascinating aspect to me. Um, I was happy to go, um, and, uh, you know, there's a few stories that I could definitely tell with regards to church history. Uh, I think one of the more overwhelming ones um, was uh, the catacombs. Uh, I got to go to the catacombs of St. Calixtus. Um, and that was an overwhelming experience. Um, and it's a, uh, how to put it? It was fascinating to see how Christians thought so closely of resurrection. And it, it made me feel it made me feel distracted. You know, it, it's not so much about um, how one is buried or anything. It has a lot more to do with what we expect and what we're, what we're, what we're oriented towards. What do we pay attention to? What do we desire? Um, what are we aiming for? And, uh, and I reflected on this as I was in there, uh, you know, like 30, 40 feet into the ground, 50, 60 in some places. And, you're just looking at all this and going, um, there's been so many perspectives and so many goals of people in the church's history. You know, I had just come out of Rome and in Rome, there was all manner of goals. There was this building and, you know, this Pope wanted, you know, their name to be immortalized on something. So they built this fountain or, you know, they finished off <laughs> St. Peter's Basilica. So, um, you know, someone, you know, happens to be Pope when that finishes off. So he gets to put his name on the front of it. You know, that kind of stuff was everywhere. Everyone wanted to, uh, set their mark on it or accomplish something or goals. And before I entered 
the catacombs, almost everything that I looked at never gave me this feeling. I'm mean, even in the Sistine Chapel. I'm like, that's oh, just remarkable stuff. Um, really incredible. Uh, things that Michelangelo painted and uh, different statues that were done and all manner of things. Um, just, just incredible. Uh, the works of human hands. And then I find myself in the catacombs and it's, there, there are no straight really lines it's it's dug out of this this volcanic soil that is easy to dig through and then hardens when air meets it so it makes this perfect place to create shelving and um and cutaways but there's no huge decoration there's no uh perfect lines it's it's a place for us to go and die together and be together and anticipate resurrection and th that's that I think was the most moving part for me is that it wasn't about what our hands could make. And I'm, I'm not calling, I'm not denigrating those who build tremendous cathedrals and things like this. Those have their own um, value. They have their own uh, thing, but not on the eternal scale. This one spoke to me on, on an eternal level that I don't think I've ever really fully appreciated and and standing there in those in those catacombs where where thousands of Christians have been buried in anticipation of rising again, and and seeing ossuaries uh, of the Capuchin monks, for instance, um, which though their their practices are very very different than anything I'd ever be comfortable with, but their anticipation, their their entire orientation of life was towards resurrection. Even the way they die, the way they bury their dead, the way they take care of their bodies, the way they immortalize those things, though it is very different than anything I would ever want to do or be a part of, it was, it spoke to me of how earthbound a lot of our focus tends to be. And it's something I was very grateful for. Um, to see from a culture very removed from mine, very different from mine, and from a timeline very different from mine. It was it was such an odd thing to see um, people who weren't Christians going about their everyday life in Rome. That was a weird thing for me. Uh, you know, almost looking at it and going, don't you appreciate what, what city you're standing in and what what history has taken place under your feet and around you. And it's, I mean, it's just, but to them, it's just every day. And to me, I'm looking at this and going, I mean, this is, this is an incredible city and so many things have happened here and, and so many horrible things, so many wonderful things. Uh, and I've, I felt like somebody were missing it. And uh, regardless of such the, the eternal focus that, that some of these Christians throughout history have had uh, really humbled me with regards to how I think about this world. And I'm grateful for that. I really am. Um, there's so many issues that go on in the church that are uh, of a temporal nature. Uh, there's so many issues that go on about it, whether we're doing this thing or that thing or whatnot. Um, but there was there was quite the effect to stand in the midst of a wisdom from an age that I've never lived in and from a culture I'll never visit, uh, to see that even there, in the midst of all of that, focus on resurrection. And I love that. I just love it. And it was it was such a blessing to be able to see that um, because it really does speak to us of one of the things that I love most about church history, and that is that we get to learn wisdom from those who aren't like us. Um, I hope that in 200 or 300 years, um, something that I have said or something that uh, someone that I have affected uh, will have a message that reverberates down the halls of history and and help somebody um, 200, 300 years from now. That would be remarkable. Um, and, and if not, that's okay. Uh, I don't need to be remembered by everyone in this world uh, or by anyone in this world. I'm remembered by my Savior. And that I think is is something that I I don't know that I'll ever think of in the same way again, um, and I'm really glad to have gone through church history so many times before entering that city, 
because it, it got me to think about things in a little bit of a different spin than I probably would have uh, several years back. Um, and there was several different aspects of my own personal life um, that have affected the way I even looked at certain things there and some of the anticipations. Um, but all that to say, um, here at the end of church history, we're, we're uh, as far as this class is concerned, not, not like us here in you know 2023, uh, but at the end of a study of church history, I think it's just helpful to sit back and be thankful uh, for those who have come before us. And to to look at those who have yet to be born, um, maybe even generations yet, many generations yet, um, and, and recommit ourselves to handing down what was given to us, um, to freely give because we've been given to so freely. And the gospel, the history of the church, and the appreciation of those who have come before us. Uh, with that, um, we will here in two weeks begin our deep dives. Um, and I will here announce the first one. Um, it's going to be a, uh, a fascinating thing I've been reading quite a bit about. Um, these deep dives are requiring a little bit more pre uh, preparation than the uh, walkthroughs of church history. Uh, I got to do a little bit more digging for them. Um, but I've been already working on the first couple of them. And the first one here in two weeks is going to be St. Columba, uh, the islands of Iona, and Lindisfarne. Uh, off the Scottish and English close uh, up in what used to be Northumbria. Um, it's a fascinating story. Um, and I really want to get into it, but I'm not going to get into it tonight. If you want to look up some of the issues of it, the Synod of Whitby will be part of it. Um, but uh, don't go and spoil it all. We've got a lot of fun planned for that. Uh, fascinating story about, um, about maintaining our responsibility, even if the culture is not part of it. Um, just taking care of what is our responsibility regardless. Um, really interesting stuff. Um, we will be doing that here in two weeks. So that is St. Columba. Um, and so we're going to find ourselves in the six and seven hundreds, uh, a little bit into the five hundreds as well. So uh, kind of, we're going to be going back to that, kind of the founding of Celtic Christianity uh, and learning some pretty cool stuff from there. So um, with that, I'm going to get back to studying for some of those things. Um, and, uh, my, my encouragement to you all, uh, I do hope that, uh, that a church history study such as this, as we are wrapping it up, uh, helps you appreciate the, uh, the work of God, regardless of how much we, we are aware of what he's doing and, uh, being grateful. Um, and I, I think that's where I would sit at the end of all of this. I'm very grateful, uh, that you're along the, uh, the ride, uh, the, the ride and, um, and may God be blessed in what we do, fallible as it is, as we pursue that kingdom that we cannot make with hands uh, in the new heavens and new earth. Uh, Ken here at the day says, thanks for another journey, uh, another terrific journey through church history, Tim. It's been a true gift. Ken, you've been with me uh, all three walkthroughs, I believe, at this point. Um, so it's been fun walking with you through it all, too. Um, I'll catch you in the deep dives here in two weeks. I'll see you guys. Lord's blessings to you all.